0: But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. So if you want to, go ahead and open that up with me. I'm going to turn there too. I, you see that my, I've lost my pulpit. And so I'm now out here as an island on this little stand. But maybe things will change. So Daniel chapter 5. A couple weeks ago, I watched a movie about the uh, Texas Rangers who were responsible for tracking down Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. I know Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, I never, I mean, I'd heard the the story of Bonnie and Clyde, heard their names, you know, and the modern-day Bonnie and Clyde, you know, couples who commit crimes together. But I never really learned the actual story. There were things about it that I didn't know. and Maybe you do know this, but I didn't. I didn't know that their entire crime spree ranged from Texas to Minnesota, and they went everywhere. I mean, robbing gas stations and banks, and a lot of that time, they were really popular. The people in America thought they were almost like Robin Hood, you know, these poor people uh, taken from the rich. And so they were able to escape the police for over two years, mainly because when they'd come into town, people thought they were like rock stars. And uh, when the police came trying to find out you know, who had committed these crimes, the people covered for them. But eventually, the uh, governor of Texas and the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, sort of called in to service these retired Texas Rangers and uh, they got after them. And though they'd been able to evade police for a couple of years, eventually, you know, they, they met their end in Louisiana. And as I've been preparing this sermon today on Daniel chapter 5, uh, the writing on the wall, I've really been thinking about their story. You know, it's one thing to evade the Texas Rangers It's another thing to run from God. You know, they they thought they could get away with it, thought they could just continue moving from place to place. And and in a time before credit cards and cell phone towers that ping your location and closed-circuit televisions, you know, they, they were able to exist out there in the world running from the cops a lot longer than you and I could. The truth is, nobody can run from God. Eventually, it catches up with you and this morning in Daniel chapter 5 that's what we're going to see we're going to look at this Babylonian king Belshazzar and see the moment where his pride caught up with him and God brought him low so if you've got your Bible look with me at Daniel chapter 5 we're going to be here in verse 1 Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine In the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine. And praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Now Daniel continues this story by drawing our attention to a magnificent feast. And if you've been here the past few weeks, you notice a change. The first four chapters, we've said, are almost all about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel and his friends are there, yeah. But it seems that God was trying to get through to Nebuchadnezzar. Then we turn the page to chapter 5, and there's a new king, Belshazzar. The deal is this. Nebuchadnezzar II had ruled in Babylon from 605 BC when he conquered Jerusalem all the way to like 530, 562, about 40 years. And after his death, there was a real big power struggle. His son ruled for a couple of months, and then he was assassinated, and then the next king came to power. And then later a coup was enacted, and a general named Nabonidus came to power. And Nabonidus got into a religious conflict. He bowed down to one god and and not the main god of the Babylonians. And so he withdrew to an oasis in Saudi Arabia in 550 B.C., and he put his son, Belshazzar, on the throne to reign in his place. So while I think, you know, it's interesting as Bible readers, we maybe pick up the book of Daniel and, you know, we're reading it at church, studying it at church, and so we read through and it seems like the events on one page immediately precede the events on the next. But between chapter 4 and chapter 5, a great deal of time has passed. Babylon's gone through king to king to king to king. And Daniel draws our attention to this Belshazzar. Because even though time has passed... And even though it's a different king, the same attitude that was present in Nebuchadnezzar is present in him. Now Nebuchadnezzar could claim all kind of accolades. He was a military conqueror, conquered all the ancient Near East. He was an architectural mastermind. We've talked a lot about the hanging gardens of Babylon that were one of the wonders of the ancient world. We talked about the golden uh, encrusted ziggurats and the great Ishtar Gate. But, Belshazzar had something that he could claim as well. He knew, through, he knew how to throw a party. You know, he, uh, he has all these nobles. Uh, if your mind works like mine, you start to envision things. And so I, I read about these thousand nobles, and my mind goes to what kind of palace it must have been like to hold a party for a thousand people. And then I start to sort of see the sights and smell the smells, I smell the delicious roasted food. See them drinking wine out of goblets. See silken tapestries hanging all around, the the golden and flickering glow of candlelights. And what I see is clear. Yeah, Belshazzar is different than Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He's kind of ruling in the waning days of the Babylonian Empire. But he still has a lot that he can claim credit for. He knows how to throw a party. Daniel tells us no expense was spared, a thousand. He even brought in his wives and concubines. It's a great feast. And after dinner, as they're toasting their gods for all the wonderful blessings they've given them, they realize that something's missing. Belshazzar decides that the goblets they have at their disposal aren't magnificent enough to worship the gods who have blessed them so. And so he calls on his attendants to go to the temple treasury, and bring out the golden and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. If you were, you were here the first week, you're familiar with these vessels. mentions them in chapter 1, that when Nebuchadnezzar lay siege to Jerusalem and conquered the city, he went in and he took the golden vessels out of the temple treasury in Jerusalem, out of Solomon's temple, and he loaded them up in the back of his wagons along with those Judean princes, and he brought them back to Babylon and placed them in the treasury of the temples to his gods. And I told you that day that that was sort of a symbolic gesture, signified that Nebuchadnezzar believed that his gods had proved victorious, that the God of Judah had been conquered and vanquished. Now as Belshazzar gathers all these people together in this wonderful feast and gets ready to start offering the toasts to his gods, he almost one-ups Nebuchadnezzar. See, uh, Nebuchadnezzar put him in the temple treasury, but we don't have any indication that Nebuchadnezzar ever would have thought to drink out of them. But Belshazzar did. He he knew how magnificent they were, were, how beautiful, how uh, wise the craftsmen must have been who made them. In fact, in Ezra, uh, we read about these golden vessels. When when Cyrus sent the exiles back to Jerusalem and and loaded them down with the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, they describe what these vessels were like. And and I want to draw your attention to this in Ezra chapter 1 verse 9. It says that Cyrus gave back 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers. Um, censers are those balls that hold incense that they would wave back and forth as they perform their ceremonies in the temple. So 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. Listen, don't get caught up on the detail, but know that when Belshazzar calls for these vessels of silver and gold. He's calling for the greatest treasures you can, I can ever imagine. It's like Indiana Jones. Open up the tomb and you see the glittering gold goblets. Belshazzar calls for him because he wants to impress his nobles with his magnificent wealth. But there's more to it than that, right? It's not just the wealth that he wants to display. He also is making a premeditated theological statement. I mean, we should not miss that the moment when the vessels get brought out or when they began to to toast the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and stone and wood. Belshazzar was looking for something that was going to really lend some credence to this um, offering of wine that they were about to make to their idols. You know, we're sort of, this is a foreign sort of concept for us. Um, We don't offer libation sacrifices to our gods. We can't really comprehend what's happening. But what they would do is is fill up these goblets with wine. And they literally would go around naming the gods who had blessed them, and they would drink in their honor. You know, a guy like Belshazzar, who was wealthy and, and had power, surely he claimed that his gods had blessed him for those things. And so in this moment, it's not just about how wealthy he was and what magnificent golden and silver vessels he had at his disposal. He knew that there was a God in Jerusalem who'd been conquered by his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And here, as he feasts with his nobles, he calls for his vessels so that he can make libation offerings to his God, to toast them in his honor. Of course, on a technical level, what Belshazzar does is commit the sin of sacrilege. And we, we call things sacrilegious. I remember when I was in high school, I went through a Monty Python phase where I wanted to watch all the Monty Python movies. And my parents were mildly supportive of the Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail. But they drew a line at other movies that the Pythons had made because they were sacrilegious. As a kid, you know, that's a foreign concept. What does that mean? Just parents don't want me to have fun, is what I think. But sacrilege is actually much much more technical than that. I looked up the definition. It's a violation of that which is sacred because it's been consecrated to God. These vessels, and you could read about it if you wanted to, when Solomon dedicated the temple. But he brought in all these golden vessels, and he dedicated them. He said, Lord, these golden vessels are not for me. They're not to show the world my wealth. They're for you. They're to serve you in your temple. They'd been dedicated, set apart, consecrated to the service of Jehovah. And here in this moment, Belshazzar turns it on its head. He takes what's been consecrated to God and he uses it in service of his idols. He commits a sin of sacrilege. But then even on a more practical level, let's not get technical with the sacrilegious thing, we ought to see what Belshazzar is doing. In his mind, the God of Israel is so small and so insignificant that even if he does exist, It's obvious that he's not powerful enough to overthrow the gods of Babylon. And therefore, whatever belongs to him by right belongs to the ones who are more powerful. He makes a mockery of all that God is, all that he stands for, the proper worship that is due to him. And God saw it all. Right right then, in that moment, as they're getting drunk on toasting their gods, the Lord acts. And it's, a, it's almost comedic how this proud feast is interrupted by the vision of a hand. And, and it's not really a vision. I've, I've caught myself several times this week thinking that. It's not a vision. It's not a hallucination. It's not a dream. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that had to be described and then interpreted. What Belshazzar sees is an actual hand writing an actual message on the wall where everybody can see it. This is an actual thing, not a hallucination or a vision or a dream. And he starts to lose his mind. I mean, I, I love the way Daniel describes it. He, he says that his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. I don't know if you've ever been that afraid before. Um, my wife sometimes has nightmares. I'll never forget the first time. <laughs> We've been married a few years. I'll never forget the first time She woke up in the middle of the night screaming. I'm trying to be the supportive husband, try to comfort her. Hey, it's going to be okay. And in her mind, I was the assailant. And she started hitting me. And I'll tell you, that night, I could not calm down. My adrenaline was pumping. My body was physically shaking. I was so disturbed. And that's Belshazzar. Belshazzar's hip joints go slack. And his knees begin knocking together. It's funny to us, but these are serious descriptions of an actual person caught up in terror. He, He doesn't know what the message says, but he knows it's ominous. Whatever it is, men's hands don't just appear writing enigmatic messages on the wall. And when they do, it's typically a sign of terrible things to come. And so Belshazzar loses his mind. His hip joints go slack, his knees start knocking together. He calls in his wise men. We've seen this before. calls in the wise men. None of them can read it. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a second, but none of them know what the message means. And so here he is, sort of paralyzed, laid out in his palace in front of all his nobles, the man who was so proud just a few moments before, now in the fetal position, crying like a baby. Thankfully, his mom's around. We're not going to get into this too much, but we see next the queen comes in. And I think this is the queen mother, says Belshazzar brought his wives and concubines, and then the queen comes out of nowhere. And uh, the ancient Greek historians tell us that the, uh, the wife of Nabonidus was incredibly wise. Some even believe she was the daughter of uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself, and that when Na- Nabonidus took the throne by power, he sought to legitimize his rule by marrying Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. But either way, she remembered Daniel. She knew that when Nebuchadnezzar was on his throne, that he had had visions and dreams and that there had been a man in whom was a spirit of the gods. And when he came, he was able to make hidden things clear and confusing things plain. And so she told Belshazzar to call Daniel in and to get him to work interpreting the message. And so that's what happens. In verse 13, we read that Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who's one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare its interpretation or the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, You'll be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you'll have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. I love this. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, keep your gifts for yourselves or give your rewards to somebody else. However, I'll read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. And here it is. This is the interpretation. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, Glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished to kill, he killed. And whomever he wished spared alive, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, He was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven also away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, yet you. His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they've brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, And all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel makes it clear, what's going on, Belshazzar. Well, I'll tell you. You know, I, I love the way that when Daniel first comes into Belshazzar's presence, he's not persuaded by Belshazzar's generous offer. You know, to take a robe of purple, to wear a golden necklace that signifies authority and wealth. He's not persuaded by the offer of authority in the kingdom as the third highest ruler. Like the other prophets, Daniel has this, I've been thinking about it as a prophetic distance. Where even though he was glad to serve Nebuchadnezzar, and of course he's submissive to Belshazzar's authority as well, and when Belshazzar calls, he comes. Belshazzar uh, never gets to experience Daniel as a yes man or as just some sort of blindly loyal servant, but Daniel maintains a prophetic distance. He never loses sight that he serves the Lord and not his king. And so when Belshazzar makes his offer, Daniel says, no, I'm not interested. Rather, I'm just going to tell you what the message says. And Before he ever gets down to the actual inscription, he reminds Belshazzar of the backstory that he already should have known. In our Bibles, chapter 4 and 5 are right beside each other, And so we read these things and we see the obvious parallel between Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the way God humbled him and Belshazzar's arrogance of exalting himself against the Lord. But apparently Belshazzar didn't draw the same connection. He didn't see how he was just like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 18, Daniel explained the writing on the wall and he drew the explicit connection. He said, this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and you should have known. Either Nebuchadnezzar was your grandfather or, or, or else like sometimes in the Bible it, it talks about um, the kings of Israel who didn't walk in the ways of their father David, even though their grandchildren or, or uh, successors way on down the line. In either case, whether it's family history or whether it's just a king knowing the history of his kingdom, Belshazzar didn't learn the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had learned. In verse 20, his heart was lifted up And his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. Daniel had been the the first-hand eyewitness of all that Nebuchadnezzar had done. The way he had exalted himself against the Lord and overthrowing Jerusalem and taking back the temple vessels. The way he had exalted himself by building that golden statue, you remember? And calling everybody to bow down before him. The way Nebuchadnezzar had received the dream that warned him of the tree that was going to be cut down. Got going to be made to a wild animal. And the, the, the time that Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar to repent or else, Daniel, Daniel had seen it all. And Belshazzar had not learned the lesson. You see, the terrible connection between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is their shared attitude towards God. Both of them were guilty of the same thing. That as God's enemies, they had exalted themselves against his authority. They had recognized the kingdom as being for them, not for God. They hadn't given him the praise and the glory and the honor that he deserved as the one who had given them everything, in whom, whose hand was even the breath that the Belshazzar was breathing. Both of them denied that. We, t- we talked about this at length last week, about how pride always is an inappropriate self-sufficiency. And if you wanna find the parallels between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, it's right there. And of course, I told you last week that this is the attitude that's present in all mankind and has been from the beginning. It's the attitude that was present in Adam and Eve when they exalted themselves against the Lord's authority and chose to disobey him so that they could be like him. But It's also the attitude that was present in others as well. Of course, all the nations gather together in Genesis 11. They say, let us build ourselves a tower that reaches to heaven, and make a name for ourselves, lest we be forgotten in the earth. The same attitude that was in the Pharaoh who rejected God's call to release his people and in an Exodus. He says this: "This is talk about pridefully exalting yourself against the Lord's authority." The Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him and let His people go?" This is the prideful self-exaltation that is present in all of God's enemies, whether they are king of ancient Babylon or whether they're a man and woman, like me and you. This is the attitude that characterizes the enemies of God. And You see in both of the cases, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, as we're going to see in a second, uh, you can't outrun him. You can exalt yourself for a little while, but eventually it catches up with you and judgment is inevitable. And so Daniel opens up this inscription in verse 25. The hand was sent from him. Oh wait, sorry, I didn't read 24 before. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now you can go online today and look up Daniel chapter 5. Type in Google Daniel 5 and look at some of the images that come up. It'll sort of help fill in the details of this message. The handwriting on the wall was not in English as it is in our Bible, right? It's in Aramaic, the language that the Babylonians knew well, the, the official court language that, that Daniel spoke, and has been the entire uh, book of Daniel's written in Aramaic. And it's written on there. These words were words that were familiar to the Chaldeans. They knew what they meant. In fact, mene, tekel, and parson, these are weights of measurement. And you'll, you'll remember from the New Testament when Jesus, talk, Jesus talks about amina, Uh, It's the same idea. Mene is a mina. Tekel is a shekel. And a perez is a half mina. And so these are measurements that the Chaldeans would have known. And so we're trying to figure out what it means that they couldn't understand the language. Maybe the letters were all smashed together. And so there were different ways to divide out the different consonants. And so there are different messages that they could have read. Maybe they were written uh, instead of what, horizontally, maybe they were written vertically. But in any case, when Daniel come in, comes in, he, he understands the message right away. He divides it out. He says, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Right? He knows exactly what the message is supposed to be. He understands that they are weights of measurement, but he understands that there's a second hidden layer, a play on words. They're not just weights of measurement, but they're verbs. They speak to what God is doing in that very moment to Belshazzar. Right, Mene, he says, you've been counted. The days of your kingship have been numbered, and they've come to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the scales of God's judgment. He's evaluated you. He's seen if you measure up, and he's found that you don't. Parson, the Lord has divided your kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. See, I love the way this works. If if we were just reading the Babylonian Chronicles and uh, about their conquerors, the Medo-Persians, we'd be able to put together the details of this event. We'd know that in 539, Darius the Mede conquered Babylon, and Belshazzar was killed, and the city fell. In fact, we do know that. All the people who were present, the thousand nobles, some of whom, no doubt, escaped, made it out alive. Daniel did. They would have been able to say that Belshazzar's fall was simply the outworking of the geopolitical realities of the 6th century BC. Just the way it happens. But God wanted everybody to know that what was about to happen to this king was an act of judgment. Because while God's enemies proudly exalt themselves against his authority, Judgment is inevitable. And he wanted everybody to know what was about to take place. He was about to act and judge the kingdom of Babylon. Of course, Daniel, by this point, is is pushing 80 years old. He's been living in exile and waiting for God to come through on his promise to judge Babylon. Jeremiah had told the people of Israel in Jeremiah 51, "...behold, I'll stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon." And I'll send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her. And they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. So Daniel knew that this was going to happen someday. You you might love Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to get to that in the spring. And, And I believe that Daniel is counting down the days. He believes that God is about to act. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, Daniel records two visions that God had given him. The first one in chapter 7 came in the first year, the reign of Belshazzar. The prophecy in chapter 8 came in the third year, the reign of Belshazzar. Daniel knows that God's about to act and about to judge his enemies. But what God wants people to know is that it was him who was behind it all. He wanted Belshazzar to understand that his time was up, that he'd been weighed and found wanting, and that God was actively going to judge him. This takes up the, the great promise of the Old Testament that though God's enemies seem to gain the upper hand and experience prosperity, often at the expense of his people, eventually he acts. They don't have the last laugh. The psalmist calls on God in Psalm 79 to pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. God promised through Ezekiel, who also prophesied in Babylon, that he was going to set his glory among the nations, and all the nations would see his judgment. Of course, Daniel 5 is sort of a magnification. You know, when you're a kid and you take the magnifying glass and you direct the sun's rays into one tiny dot so that it starts smoking. And if you hold it there long enough, eventually it catches fire. Daniel 5 is that magnification process happening. It is a laser focus of God's judgment on Belshazzar. I mean, he, in himself, he, he sort of personified all arrogance and evil and wickedness that exalts itself against the Lord. He's the king of Babylon, the nation since G- Genesis 11 has been exalting itself against God. And so he was about to act. But eventually God widens his focus. And I wish I could tell you this morning that God only chooses to judge nations, institutions, and ideas. But you probably know that eventually God directs his judgment on individuals. Paul talks about it in Romans 2. He says, do you suppose, O man, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, the, the major difference between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5 is that when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, He extended to him the opportunity to repent. And when he lifted his eyes to heaven, the Lord restored his mind, brought him back to his kingdom, made him wealthier than he'd ever been before. But Belshazzar doesn't get that same opportunity. In verse 30 of Daniel 5, it says, That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So Belshazzar was at the height of his power thought the gods had blessed him beyond anything anybody could ever imagine. He wasn't prepared for the moment when God decided to act. And this morning, I, I want to warn you to be ready. What happened to Belshazzar that day was this laser focus of something that ends up widening in scope. The prophets call it the day of the Lord. Jeremiah says the day is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated, that's be satisfied, and drink its fill with blood. Joel 2, the Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's a terrible thing. Joel later says, hey, why would anybody ask for this day? You think it'd be great to see God face to face, but it's going to be a terrible moment. The Apostle John in the New Testament gets a vision of it. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, he describes what it will be like when the rider on the white horse appears from heaven. He'll have a sword coming out of his mouth, and he'll be carrying a sword that he intends to use on all his enemies. It's a terrible thing. and Many people won't be ready for the day. In fact, why don't you look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul worried about his friends in Thessalonica. They're asking questions about the world around them, living through a tumultuous political environment, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And Paul says in First Thessalonians 5.1, I'll give you a second to get there. First Thessalonians 5:1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. This is the reality. Seen, illustrated in the life of Belshazzar, the height of his prosperity, drinking wine with his nobles. And in that moment, God acts. Tonight your soul is required of you. It's done. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I know it in previous generations it was a, a common thing to hear a pastor say, do you know where you'd go if you died tonight? Belshazzar, wasn't thinking that way. And there was a time in my life when I wasn't either. I was 14 years old, February of 2004, sitting on the back row in a gym during a youth event called Disciple Now, my home church in Mobile, Alabama. And I was a pretty good kid. i have been raised in a pastor's house, and so uh, never really got into much trouble in life. I'd always wanted to please my parents. I'm the firstborn son. So I have a complex about that, you know, always wanted my parents to be proud of me and stuff. And so I had managed somehow to make it to 14 without any major difficulties. I'd made my parents proud, and in my mind, I thought I'd made God proud. You know, why wouldn't God love me? I'm a good kid. But that night, this youth speaker up here at the front of the church starts talking about sin, using past. The scripture that I'm sure I'd heard a thousand times before but that I'd never understood stuff like for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the wages of sin is death it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment and it felt like that laser focus that had been on Belshazzar and Daniel 5 was on me how could I stand before the Lord Maybe I could please my parents. Maybe I could fool my youth pastor. But if I'm going to be laid bare before God, what do I have to show him? Have you asked yourself that? Are you convinced that if you stood before the Lord, you'd have anything different than Belshazzar? If he'd counted out your days, determined that your life was at an end, If he put you in the scales of justice and evaluated you according to the measuring stick of his holiness and perfection, what would he find? The truth of Scripture is clear. He's going to do that for each one of us. And what he'll find will be the same. Even our righteous deeds are filthy rags. We've got nothing to commend ourselves before him. And the same God that judges The same God that evaluates Belshazzar will evaluate you. And so the word that Belshazzar heard is the one that we all need to hear. That God's enemies may proudly exalt themselves against his authority, but judgment is inevitable. You know, one time the Apostle Peter preached a message that kind of ended there. That was kind of his landing point. And the people who heard said, brothers what must we do to be saved they recognize that if God is going to evaluate each of us then we better find a way to get right with him And the same Bible that warns us of the coming judgment tells us that this perfect this holy God took it on himself that even while we were his enemies exalting ourselves inappropriately finding reasons to be self-sufficient and proud of all that we had accomplished. He sent his only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh that we might find forgiveness. The one who comes on a white horse with a tattoo on his leg, is what I think it means. It says it's written on his leg, King of King and Lord of Lords. This same one who's going to crush his enemies with a rod of iron, willingly laid down his life, so that you and I could be saved from the wrath of God that's to come. That's why it's important to keep reading in First Thessalonians 5. He said, yeah, the day of the Lord is going to come on those like a thief in the night, like labor pains come on a woman when she's least expecting it. But you, brothers, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert, and sober. For those who sleep, they're sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since you're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And get this, this is a promise you plaster on your mirror, so you hear it every morning. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. This morning, I don't know as uh, as a pastor how to impress on you this truth. There are a lot of things and people vying for our attention, promising us a wonderful future, great prosperity, hope. But if you really want to have confidence about where you're going, it begins here. Because eventually, each one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. And unless we stand, like the song we sang earlier says, dressed in his righteousness alone, we're doomed, ready to be judged. And so this morning, as we close, I want to ask you to evaluate yourself in the way that God called on Nebuchadnezzar to evaluate himself, the way that God called on Belshazzar to analyze himself, to humble yourself, to ask the Lord to search you and to make sure that you believe what Paul says here, that you're not destined for wrath, but for life in Christ. Will you pray with me?